right, my name's Jeff, if we haven't met. Uh, great to see you here uh, this morning. And uh, we are in a series called Home. We're, we're in a part of our series where we're talking about what does it look like to live in exile? What does it mean to be in a place that we wouldn't call home, but it has to be our home for a season? And kind of the question that we've been looking at, specifically as we've been going through this part with Daniel, is what does it look like to live in a culture as a Christian what does it look like to be a Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to be a Christian? That's the, kind of the question. That's, that's what we mean by exile. What does it look like to be a Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to be a Christian? And I'm going to start, uh, I like to have a little intro that gets you thinking. I'm going to start with a country music song. I'm not really a country music listener. I like it. I just, it's not my main cup of tea. There's a few songs that I'm into, but I don't own cowboy boots or I don't have a big belt buckle. I think it's cool. I just, I grew up in... Midwest suburban Ohio. I just didn't get ingrained in it. But, but I, I was thinking of a song. I know this song. You might know this song. It's by Tim McGraw. It's called Live Like You Were Dying. You know that song? You'll remember it if you've heard it. In the song, Tim McGraw sings about a man in his 40s who is diagnosed with a terminal illness that changes the way he lives. He finds that keeping death daily before his eyes helps him to keep life daily before his eyes. And when asked, this is the part, if you don't know the song, you might remember. When asked what he did when he found out the news of his illness, the man in the song replies that he went skydiving and mountain climbing and bull riding, right? You remember that? But he also says this, that he loved deeper and he spoke sweeter and he gave forgiveness he'd been denying. And then he says, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. It's kind of what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to get there by re-entering this world of Daniel. If you want to turn with me to Daniel chapter 6, if not, the slides will be up here. Daniel chapter 6, it begins with these words, it pleased Darius. So let me stop there. Who's Darius? We were talking about Nebuchadnezzar last week. Who's Darius? Well, almost 50 years, so the Babylonian Empire destroys Jerusalem, exiles the people, destroys the temple. And almost 50 years later, the Medo-Persian Empire becomes the big game in town, I guess you could say. So the Persians overwhelm the Babylonians, and the Persians are now reigning and ruling. Uh, We had Cyrus. We might talk more about Cyrus the last week of the series. Cyrus is the Persian emperor who actually sent the Jewish people home. A lot of the Old Testament then at the end is dealing with Cyrus's decree And the people returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, that was all because of Cyrus. Well, now we're at Darius. Darius is after that. And I mean, a lot of time has passed, right? We're still talking about Daniel. Daniel's probably like 80 years old. He's an old guy. Well, some of you think he's young, right? But he's a good old 80 years age, right? A good young 80 years of age. So that's where we're at. It pleased Darius to set over his kingdom, the kingdom, 120 state traps or Maybe our terminology, we would say a governor of some sort, but, but Cyrus had just kind of adopted the Babylonian way of administrating the, the empire, and Darius is like, I'm going to change some things. I want 120 people over all of what I rule, and then I'm going to appoint, he says, three presidents. We might call them vice presidents, maybe, but three people that these 120 satraps are going to report to, right? And um, verse three, one, well, one of them is Daniel verse 2. So verse 3, this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because of an excellent spirit was in him. 
I mean, Daniel's just, a, he's a talented guy. And some of it is just who God made him to be. He's just, he's one of these guys that's just going to be successful. He's just, he's good at administration and leading. But he's also got, I mean, if you've been reading through Daniel, the spirit of God is on him. I mean, he's just equipped in the spirit of God. And so he's, re- he's ruling well. He's an amazing servant for the king. And at the end of verse 3, it says, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I don't need three presidents. Just give me Daniel. And some of them even might be, well, Daniel's 80. He's not really a threat. He's not going to try to overthrow the king. He, Darius trusts Daniel. He's been in this role. He just understands the empire. And so I'm just going to set him up, right? Verse 4, the president's satraps sought to find the ground this is an interesting verse. I thought about this verse for a while. I'll tell you why. Found gr- find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they couldn't find a ground for complaint because he was faithful and there was no error or fault was found in him. So pause there. You and I have been through some changing of the guard in terms of our national leadership. <laughs> I just want you to see that smearing the other candidates isn't a new invention, right? It's thousands of years ago. And everyone's like, how do we smear Daniel's character? Now, what you might not believe, especially in a day and age where we live, where there's less, this is why you should vote for me and more, let me smear the other person so you don't vote for them. They couldn't find anything. You might think this is a bigger miracle than Daniel and Lion's Den. They couldn't find anything with Daniel. Here's a leader in the empire and they can't find, he's a man of integrity. He knows who he is. He's a faithful Jew. He's just lived with honesty and character. And they can find nothing on him. So, verse 5. Well, this guy is too good to be true, but he's a Jew. He's not Babylonian. So let's lean into this Jewishness. We'll find something. And so they come up with a plan. Verse 6. These presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, Oh, King Darius, live forever. That's what you do when you have a king. Oh, King Darius, live forever. King Darius is like, what do you want? Yeah, I like that. All the presidents of the kingdom, all the prefects, the governors, counselors, everybody's leading. We've all agreed that the king, it's early in the king's reign, right? We agree that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes any petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, long live the king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So king, is a great idea. You like the idea. Hurry up, sign an injunction, get this in the document form, and Make sure it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians so it's never revoked. And the king does it, right? So what's going on here? Well, these leaders come, they've got a plan, and they appeal to King Darius's ego. They kind of manipulate him with this pride. Hey, it's early on, and just to show that you are king and everybody's loyal to you now... How about we make it so that everyone suspends their ordinary religious activities and all devotion is to the king and the king alone? Which, again, we've talked about in the past. This was a polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. For most people, they would have been, okay, I'll give it 30 days. I'll see what kind of blessing I get by worshiping Darius. But not for a Jew. Jews are monotheistic. They worship one God. And so these people knew what they were doing. They say, well, all devotion goes to the king. Essentially, you could say it this way. The empire says that you must put, for the next 30 days, the empire says you must put all your trust in the empire. You must direct all your prayers and petitions to the empire. You must look to the empire for everything for the next 30 days. Darius says this is good, and he signs it into a law. Can't be overturned. 
penalty is the lion's den. Brings us to verse 10. We're going to camp out on verse 10 for a little bit. When Daniel knew, I think it's really important because we're going to talk about two main things and we're going to go back and forth with this prayer and courage, prayer and courage. When Daniel finds out, I'm sure it would have some kind of impact, some kind of response. I'm a Jew. I, I can't pray to King Darius. I only pray to Yahweh. I would imagine he was struggling, confused, maybe even felt some fear. We'll talk about this. But what does Daniel do? It says, he went up to his house where he had windows and his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And it says, he got down on his knees three times a day. And he prayed and gave thanks before his God. Not to King Darius, but to Yahweh. It says, as he had done previously. You could read that as, as he has always done. (laughs) This is what Daniel, Daniel does. So we're going to talk about a few things. As I said, prayer and courage. And the first thing, I'm going to come right out and say it. There's a few messages for us living in modern day Babylon as exiles, trying to be Christians in a culture that doesn't want us to be Christians. And here's the first thing I'll say to you. Don't let the empire steal the formative practice of prayer. We've talked a lot about, well, not a lot, I'm sorry. We've talked a little about technology. We have. A couple weeks ago, we talked a little bit about technology. We need to talk more about it. But there's so much vying for your attention, trying to fill your mental downtime space, trying to tell you how to use your time, and very little of it is a call to prayer in modern-day Babylon. Don't let the empire steal the formative practice of prayer. I know you're busy, and I know there's really good things to do, really fun things, really... Don't let the empire steal the formative practice of prayer. Or one day we'll all wake up and be Babylonian. The earliest Christians were Jews, and with the Jews, they followed these times of prayer during the day. In other words, they didn't just pray as the Spirit moved them. Now, they did, but they didn't wait for the Spirit to move. And they didn't only pray when they were in desperation. Of course they did. But they had a liturgy, a rhythm, a routine, a formative practice of praying three times a day. Whether they felt it or not. Whether they were in need or not. They prayed three times a day. I've shared with you that a few years ago I went to prayer school. Didn't know what it was. Just went because of some friends and have been blessed ever since. And so now I daily pray a liturgy. I pray it daily. I I teach this informed, our discipleship pathway. If you've never been through, I do a modified version of prayer school. It's much smaller. But but if you've never been through it and you're like, I'd like to learn another way to pray. It's not the only way to pray, but a way to pray. You You can email me and you could join our class. It'll be in two or three weeks on a Wednesday night for about an hour and a half. But I pray a liturgy because I want to be formed as a Christian. I pray it every day. And at prayer school, I've told you this many times, but I learned that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what I think he should do. Or as I learned from the guy who taught prayer school, the the purpose of prayer is not to harness omnipotence for your own ends. The primary purpose of prayer is to be formed, to be like God in whose image we are made, to be like Jesus. 
And I'm trying to help you see, and we're still on this journey, but living in modern-day Babylon, I hope you see that you and I are always being formed. I like to say, you'll never drift into the Jesus way. If you're drifting, you're drifting somewhere, but it's not the Jesus way. Because you're drinking in so much of modern-day Babylon, and you may not know it, (laughs) but in modern-day Babylon, it's not calling you to look like Jesus. And if you allow your soul to be formed by Babylon, and you know this if you're honest with yourself, if you allow your soul to be formed by modern-day Babylon, it leads to all kinds of anxiety. And actually, if we look back at some of the last parts of Nebuchadnezzar's story, we could even say insanity. Certainly sleepless nights. To be a Christian is to belong to a counterculture. To be a Christian is to be much like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be formed by a counterscript, a different story. To be a Christian is to say, the Bible tells me the true story of humanity. It tells me, it tells me, it, there's so many things that it tells me who I am and why I'm here and what I'm for and who God is and what's wrong with the world and how God is making things right. This story shapes us. It's a different story than other stories. But to be a Christian is to say yes to this story. To be a Christian is to say yes to the creeds. That last song we sang is based off of one of the creeds. We have a different creed. We say we believe these things. I believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the resurrection and the church and forgiveness. I believe in these things. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe. We have a a creed. We have scripture. We have a calendar. We have our own calendar, which that's our next series. Our next series is going to lean into the Christian calendar. We have prayer. We have worship. If we don't have a liturgy, if you don't have a path that you're walking, then you'll be formed with the liturgies of the empire, the liturgies of consumerism, the liturgies of the advertisers. And most of this is why we're going to talk about courage. Most of those liturgies are are liturgies of fear. You'll be wrongly formed. You'll live with anxiety of fear. But, but if you're a Christian, then be a Christian because, because you're different, you're distinct, you're set apart. And we have a different story different calendar, different creed, and so it forms us in a different way. The empire's endless liturgies of consumerism and fear are too powerful for you and I to resist on our own. And you need, you need, you need the church, you need lots of things, but for the sake of this morning, let me say it directly. Unless you have a practice of formative prayer, the endless liturgies you hear will shape you And you'll bear the image of empire on your soul. Unless you learn to pray. That's why the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them a prayer to pray. (laughs) And you need a practice of formative prayer or you'll be like all the Babylonians. There's so many liturgies of fear. So many liturgies of fear in our world. If you step back, if the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see, they're all around us. So many liturgies of fear. Um, and I actually, I, was, I, I shared this a few weeks ago. I was thinking about this. Somebody said, and I don't know how to verify that this is like true, but I think it's generally true. That because we've been shaped and formed by these liturgies of fear, we instinctually, because our souls have been formed, we instinctually wake up in the morning with two questions. What do I need to be afraid of today? And who do I blame? If you feel like you wake up, um, what am I supposed to be afraid of? I know I'm supposed to be afraid. What am I afraid of and who do I blame? Yes, we've been formed by modern day Babylon. 
And I've preached on fear many times before, and I will preach on fear again. But today, what I want to do is focus on courage. I'm going to try to put fear in its proper place. We're going to spend a little time talking about courage. Daniel prays. He's got a formative practice of prayer. And I think that is the foundation. It's the fountainhead for his act of courage. Now, what is courage in general? Courage in general is doing the right thing even though you're afraid. Doing the right thing in spite of your fear. That's what Daniel does. The empire says, nope, you're going to give all your devotion to the empire, all your prayers devoted to the empire. And at the risk of a lion's den, Daniel says, well, I'm going to do the right thing. (laughs) And I'm going to pray to the living God, the one true God. I'm not going to pray to false gods. And our elders, a couple of our elders, actually a small team and our spouses, we've, we, we've kind of been doing this pilot. We, we had another couple actually uh, kind of do this pilot on counseling, which I'll talk more about in the future. We, we piloted it, and I think there's stuff there that has a place in our church. I think just dealing with some of the stuff that happens in the family of our church, and if I could just say even just growing in emotional maturity. I think there's some resources that we want to give our small group leaders, our leaders, just our church in general. We'll talk more about that in the future. But we were a part of this group, and the couple leading the group spent a whole week talking about virtues and vices. And I found it really helpful, virtues and vices. And I want to spend some time over the next three weeks talking about three virtues that, I don't know, we talk about, but probably not enough. I want to celebrate the virtues of the kingdom of God. (laughs) Because if we don't spend some time celebrating the virtues of the kingdom of God, I'm afraid we'll be too influenced by the counterfeit virtues of modern day Babylon. And it'll be damaging to our soul. So we began this conversation about virtues and vices. And the the couple leading said, well, the way they view things is that every virtue comes with two vices. And I was like, that sounds, I don't know. I like that. I don't know. Come on, two, really, every virtue. And they said, yeah, let me, let me explain what, let me explain what I mean. They they, they sold me on this. I'm still testing it out, but I, I think they're probably right. For every virtue, there's two vices, and those two vices that oppose it go one of two ways. Either either you're in a situation where you have too little of the virtue, you have a deficiency, too little of the virtue, and we'll explain this with courage, because Daniel's exhibiting courage. We'll explain this with courage. Or you have too much of the virtue. It's an excess. You've got too much of the virtue. So let's do this with courage. So if courage is allowing us to do what God wants us to do in spite of our fear— then what does it mean to have too little courage? Well, we would call that cowardice, wouldn't we? It's cowardice. It's a vice. It's opposed to courage. And when you're operating with too little courage, you become paralyzed by your fears. The fears are so much or so many or so overwhelming that you are unable to do the right thing. So much fear, you just can't do the right thing. You don't do the right thing. And I was thinking about it, and maybe we could talk more. I'm not going to do a deep dive in all of this. But, but in general, in modern-day Babylon, we, we kind of, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, no one's like, woohoo, coward, right? It's, it's kind of a vice, whoever you are. It's, I don't know. It's, too little courage isn't viewed highly in our world today. But what about too much courage? What happens when you have courage when you don't need to be courageous? <laughs> I think we could call that 
that excess of courage, you could call it bravado or recklessness. It's a counterfeit courage. I think our culture values it. I'm not sure it's a kingdom virtue. We usually do it because we're trying to impress people. And one of the ways that we do this, if you read some of the modern day literature, right, is that we try to banish our fears. This is one, one approach. It's not the only approach, but one, we banish our fears. We say, I'll never fail. I'm only going to think good, happy thoughts. And I'm going to get rid of any thought of failure. I'm a, I'm a success, and there's nothing to be afraid of. Which, I don't know, we live in a broken world. You don't always, sometimes you fail. <laughs> sometimes, I don't know if you've had any experiences, but sometimes things happen you didn't want to happen. I don't know if anything's happened in the last year and a half like that. Sometimes things don't go your way. So this bravado, this like, ah, I'm going to just banish fear. It's just, it's, it's, what it is is you're living in la-la land. You're naive and you're not dealing with reality. And the reason I pick that one is because it creeps its way into the church. Have you ever said, I mean, maybe you've never said it out loud. I've, I know I've thought this. I'm a good Christian, so nothing bad will happen to me. I'm a good Christian. In fact, if I wanted to be irresponsible, I could probably teach Daniel 6 that way, right? Because he's blameless, right? So I'm a good Christian, so not, that's just not real life. I mean, the, the biblical story is probably more, I mean, maybe the clearest expression would be Esther, Queen Esther, also in exile. Esther has her moment of courage, and what does she say? If I perish, I perish. That's what she says. That's reality. We live in a broken world. We don't need something to banish our fears. What we need is something or someone to help us do the right thing despite of our fears. That's realistic courage. I may die, but I'm going go, to go do it. Doing something when you're not, it's not really a f- courage if you're not afraid. Because courage is acting in spite of your fears. Or living like you're dying, right? Live like you're dying. I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He passed away a few years ago. He's a thoughtful, kind of a funny guy, honestly, Christian. His most famous book, I think, is Orthodoxy. But he had this to say about courage. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He quotes Jesus. He says, Jesus says, he that will lose his life, the same shall save it. And he says, this is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It's a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. This paradox is the whole principle of courage, even quite earthly or quite brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. He needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. And he must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. No, he must seek life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. And then he says this, He must desire life like water, yet drink death like wine. Or, as another pastor says that I think fits in this sermon very well, courage is fear who said its prayer. (laughs) 
courageous fear who said its prayers. Well, let's keep going in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. So, so these, these satraps, these governors, all the people who are trying to catch Daniel in a trap, uh, they come to the king and they said, hey, Daniel's been praying to somebody other than you. Pick up in verse 13. So they answered and said to the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles, right? They're in exile. He's from Judah. He's not Babylonian. He pays no attention to you, king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition to his God three, three times a day, king. Verse 14, remember, the king loves Daniel. Like, he's got plans. Daniel's going to make his reign and rule easier. The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. He realized, I've been played. They got the best of me. They manipulated me. They leaned into my ego and they pri- my pride and they got me. But he's like, I can't let this happen. I've got to deliver Daniel. It says he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. But realize, there's, there's just no legal maneuver he could pull to get Daniel out of the lion's den. Verse 16 So the king, I think, reluctantly commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, it's kind of like his goodbye. Sorry, Daniel, but may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. I I don't know that that's a, I don't think that's a prayer said with much confidence. I think it's a, I respect you, Daniel, and I'm sorry. And then we get to verse 17. I know some of you are into all these movie series and what, what do people love to look for in movie series? Easter eggs, right? I've been trying to tell all of you that, that the Bible is the originator of Easter eggs. The, the Old Testament is full of these, these little pieces in the story that point to, they get connected in other places. They point to a bigger story and they're really fun to find. Just like in the movies, they're fun to find in the Bible. I think verse 17 is an Easter egg pointing to another story. So Dan, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The den. This is a den with lions. You could call it a pit. I'm going to talk about it as a pit. I think it's in the ground. You've got this pit. You could call it a cave. You could call it a den. But if you're being thrown into a den of lions, I think you could also call it a tomb. It's a tomb. Daniel's brought. He's laid in this tomb. And a stone is rolled in front of the tomb or over the tomb. And the king seals it with his own signet, with the signet of the, of the empire. I'll come back to that little Easter egg. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and slept, fled from it. I mean, it's amazing how often these kings can't sleep, right? Anxiety. I mean, empire just brings anxiety. No sleep for the king. So let me ask you this question. Daniel remains faithful to his God, and he's thrown into a den, a tomb with lions. Does a commitment to daily formative prayer guarantee success and smooth sailing? No. No, it does not. Not only does it not guarantee success and smooth sailing, because again, the purpose of prayer is not to harness omnipotence for your own ends. (laughs) purpose of prayer is to be formed, to know the living God. So formative prayer doesn't, not only does it not guarantee success and smooth sailing, but it may, may lead you to be thrown into the lion's den, your own tomb. You and I are not called to success or to safety. 
But I believe we are called in a broken world to courage and to being a faithful presence, a, a counter story, a counterculture. A, a, what have I said all the way through this series? A different kind of people, a people the world has never seen before. God's people, that's what we're called to be. And it doesn't mean that following him will lead to safety or success all the time. Daniel's decision to remain faithful to Yahweh in exile drives him into the pits. I like that language because if you read through the Psalms, the psalmists are often in the pit. That's where they end up in the pit. Daniel's placed in this pit and he doesn't know what's next. The stone of the light is cut off. It's just darkness. He's powerless and all he can do is wait. All he can do is wait on his God. I mean, you think about Daniel's about to be made the most powerful person other than the king. I mean, he's like, forget forget three, I just want to empower Daniel. And out of nowhere, these people start to oppose him. They're jealous of him. They want to pull him down. And something bad happens. And now Daniel, he's about to be made the most powerful person next to the king. And now he's in this pit, in this place of dismay, of disappointment and disorientation. And when you're in the pit, as the Bible talks about it, you can't pull yourself out. He can't get himself out of the pit. He can't fight off the lions in his own strength. He can't move the rock. So how do you get out of the pit? Well, you do what Daniel did three times a day, whether he was in a pit or not. You lift up your soul to God. You spend time in his presence. You allow the character of God to rub off on you. You learn from Jesus, this God, how to live like him. In prayer school, I learned that when we're distanced from God, we end up agitated, grasping, foolish, and afraid. And when we lift our soul to escape this false self who's agitated and grasping and foolish and afraid, we begin to find our true self. And you've heard me say this before. What is our true self? Our true self is that we are calm, content, wise, and unafraid. That's your truest self. You're calm, content, wise, and unafraid. If you spend all of your time praying out of your agitated, grasping, foolish, fearful self, it does you little good and you just remain in the pit. That's where you stay. If you pray out of your agitated, grasping, foolish, fearful self, you remain, go figure, agitated, grasping, foolish, and fearful. But that's not who you really are. That's your shadow self. That's what the liturgies of fear have done to you. The real you is calm, content, wise. And I want to say it this way. I've been wrestling back and forth with this. But the real you in Christ is unafraid. Now, we live in a broken world, and so it's, it's hard to be in a place where, where, there's, where, where you're completely unafraid. And so that's why this morning I want to talk about courage, <laughs> doing the right thing even in the midst of your fears. But I think we can pray into being truly unafraid. Some of you may be newer to church, and you may be surprised because you know the agitated, anxious self. You may be surprised But this is part of the good news for you. The true you, the person that Jesus Christ brought into existence, the truest version of you is calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Now, why do I say that? 
Because if you're in the pit and you lift your soul up to God in prayer, you will discover that this God, the one true God, is calm. And you were made in his image. He's not nervous or agitated. And he's content. And you were made in his image. And he's not grasping. And he's wise with wisdom you can't even imagine. And you were made in his image. And he's not foolish. (laughs) And this God is unafraid. I think we could even say courageous. I will explain what I mean by that. At least he gives us an example of that. I'll explain that in a few minutes. But let me say this. If you allow the liturgies of fear to form you, this is what happens. And I think modern day Babylon is working hard at this. If you allow the the liturgies of fear to shape you and form you, I think you will discover that fear reverses reality by making evil seem all-conquering and God-powerless. I mean, we live in a secular culture, and our culture certainly wants you to believe that evil is all-conquering and that your God is powerless. If he's even there, he's powerless. But we are a different kind of people, and we know that Christ himself defeated evil on the cross. That our God is a God of unimaginable power, that all authority resides in him. (laughs) So yeah, there's all kinds of liturgies out there telling you, be afraid, wake up, what should I be afraid of today, who should I blame? Evil's all-conquering. It's not all-conquering because your God is powerful. And you were called to be calm, content, wise, and unafraid. And yes, and this is where the, I mean, again, this is an extreme story from Daniel in exile, but it's, it's got a purpose. Exile's hard, and God is giving his people in a powerful story. So Daniel ends up in the lion's den, but what does he discover? That God is with him. That God has sent him an angel. And this is why I keep saying, even if our greatest fear, and our greatest fear is the fear of death, what do we believe? Because we're a different people with a counterscript. We believe that Jesus Christ has entered into death and filled it with his life. We believe that Jesus was also trapped by people, right? They had a plot. They trapped him. He was, he was blameless. And he's thrown into his own little tomb of lions, right? And there's a stone rolled in front of his grave. And it's sealed by the empire of Rome because Rome's the empire in his day. And Jesus is dead for two days and then he's resurrected. And so we have faith that our God has filled death with his life. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. He is vindicated. And because Jesus is vindicated, raised by the Father... Everything he says, we know it's true. That's why we, he says some things that should challenge us in modern-day Babylon. Modern-day Babylon says this. Jesus says this. Why do we, because Jesus was resurrected, and the Father said, listen to him. Listen to my son. That's what he says at the transfiguration. Everything Jesus says is true. Everything Jesus says is life. We take Jesus very seriously here. Daniel chapter 6. Let me just, I've already said it, but. At the break of day, verse 19, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near the den where Daniel was. And he cried out in a tone of anguish. It's real anguish. I don't, he, has, he has no thought that Daniel survived the night. I imagine the king's a little bit, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? He's in anguish. And then out of nowhere, Daniel says, Oh, king, live forever. And he's like, What? What? And of course, you see, Daniel, he's a wise politician, isn't he? Oh, king, live forever. My God, 
sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Not a scratch, because I was found blameless before my God. And also before you, I have I've done no harm. Verse 23, I think it's the ultimate understatement. The king was exceedingly glad. I think it's got to be more than that. And he commands that Daniel be brought out. And he celebrates what Daniel's God did. <laughs> Daniel had his, lifted his soul up to God in prayer, and now he is lifted from the den of the lions. And what an adventure. And as I was preaching, I just think I'll encourage, I pulled out a book book I bought years ago. I was at a conference. A guy named Gary Haugen spoke right after he wrote this book. It's a book called Just Courage. I don't know if you know the name of Gary Haugen, but he's the founder of IJM, International Justice Mission. Incredible. What they do, I mean, evil is at work in our world, and maybe the boldest, most horrifying, I don't know, I don't know, but maybe the boldest, most horrifying expression of evil in our world today is the, the slave trade, the sex trafficking that is happening to kids and women. And the IJM was founded to free, literally liberate the slaves from the, from the sex trade, from the, the slave, slave trafficking. So Gary Haugen's a really fascinating guy. He has incredible stories, being around crazy violence and still seeing God show up and seeing people being delivered. And he shares a story. I remember this story. He talks about it in his book. I won't do it full justice, but he shares a story. When he was 10 years old, Reminds me how much the world has changed. <laughs> I was thinking about, actually, if you were here this summer, Jeff Griffin preached, my friend, and he was saying he was 11 years old, and he and his friend got on the train and went downtown Chicago for the day and then got on the train. And my son, is, he was 11 when Jeff, I was like, I can't imagine Jay with one friend getting on the train and spending the day in downtown Chicago, but times have changed. Well, Gary Haugen said he was 10 years old, and he and his dad and his two brothers went to a national forest. And they were getting ready to hike this trail, and he saw these signs. The trail they wanted to do, it looked scary. He was scared. He didn't want to risk it. He wanted to stay safe, so he did what any good 10-year-old would do. He said, Dad, I don't want to go. It looks boring. His dad said, fine. Again, I can't imagine this today, but the world has changed a bit. You stay in the visitor center. (laughs) We'll go on the hike. So Gary Haugen said he did. He spent hours. At first, it was fun. There were lots of people. The visitor center was the place to be. He says, I was totally safe. But as time wore on, I really did get bored. And I was totally stuck. And he said his dad and his brothers, they came back. And their face was pink. They had been in the cold. They had scratches. They had, they had gone on this adventure. And they had battle scars to prove it. And Gary Haugen said, that day, that day, I went on the journey and I missed the adventure. And in his book, he's talking about, I mean, we talk a lot about being on this Christian journey. He kind of makes the same appeal. Don't go on the journey and miss the adventure. Don't go on the journey and miss the adventure. And if you're going to go on the journey and if you're going to live the adventure, It's going to demand courage. It is. The discipleship journey. Maybe down the road as we are working out what it means to be like Jesus, we will know what it means to be unafraid. Because really in Christ we have nothing to fear. But while you're walking that road, while you're on that path, you're going to need courage. In a broken world, you're going to need courage. You're going to need to be able to do the right thing even though you're afraid. The kingdom of God is not something that you just accept now and you enjoy later. 
The kingdom of God is something that you can enter into today, and it's going to demand courage. I want to ask you, will you choose courage over comfort? Will you choose what's right over what's easy? Because of the modern day liturgies of fear, we tend to go as far as we feel safe, as far as we are in control, as far as we feel the risks are manageable, which for most of us honestly isn't very far. We just stay in the visitor center. For many of us, though we don't want to be honest about it, the boundary of our range of action in following Jesus is often determined by our ultimate fears. Don't let fear limit you on the journey. Embrace the adventure. Because if we can cross these boundaries of fear by the Spirit of God, we will know adventure, we will know freedom, we will know life. My experience across to you is we don't really know what courage is. Some of you, and I won't, po- I won't point you out, but some of you are in the room. And you know, you know I'm talking to you because we've sat in the library. It's been five, ten, maybe more people. You start to share your story with me and I'm just, I'm just like eyes wide open. I can't believe what I'm hearing. You're being so honest and, and so faithful to Jesus through difficult things. And I look you in the eyes and I say, you're courageous. You're courageous. And every single one of you says, I don't feel courageous. <laughs> well, let's redeem courage because there are courageous people in our church. Let's be a people who do the right thing. The Jesus stuff, the love, the forgiveness, all the Jesus commands. Let's be a counterculture in modern-day Babylon. And we're going to have to learn from Jesus what this looks like. I think maybe one of the best pictures in the gospel is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because if courage is something we're to live into, then in some way, shape, or form, we learn it from Jesus. I mean, I, I like to say anything good, like the ultimate definition is Jesus. Whatever courage is at its best is Jesus. I like to say if you want to know what love is, you look at Jesus. Jesus, everything you're looking for, you find in Jesus. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. He's, I mean, prayer is the foundation of our courage, right? I think that's where Daniel finds the courage. He's got a lifetime of prayer with the Father. And Jesus says, take this cup, but thy will be done. That's what Jesus says. I mean, that needs to be our prayer. Take this cup, but thy will be done. Fear will not limit me. I'm going to be part of the adventure on the journey. So let's recover our courage. Let's not play it safe. Jesus never promised us safety, but what he did promise us is abundant life, eternal life, true life. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you got to lose it. You got to live like you're dying. <laughs> but, what, but that life you find in Jesus is the greatest, most soul-satisfying life you will ever find. Amen? Let's pray. Now, Jesus, we hear your call this morning. It is a call to courage. In modern day Babylon, we do. We, I mean, we're, it's, sometimes it just takes courage to be honest about our fears. There are things that fear put in its proper place. There are probably some things we should be afraid of. But we refuse to believe that evil conquers all. And we refuse to believe that you are powerless or not there. We demonstrate that simply by we're we're praying to you, we're talking to you, we know you're there. And we believe your stories. (laughs) We believe in your power, Jesus. And we trust you. We want to be a people of prayer and a people of courage. We want to be people who 
because we've prayed and spent time with you and sat with you, Jesus, we know what you would do. We've patiently sat with you and we know who you are and we know what you're asking of us. And then when you ask it of us, even if we're afraid, we say yes. Because that's what your followers do. They say yes again and again. And it's in your name and by your strength that we pray this prayer. Amen.